verses 1 through 10. If you want to follow along in the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1776 from Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving a wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Thanks, Alan. Hey, everyone. There's a couple ways to dive into this. One is by biblical theological reaction criticism, and the other is to simply ask the question, what is really ruining your life? Let's do both very briefly. Historically, the, the literary criticism called reaction criticism has been used to attack the Bible's validity. But at its very root, it asks a very good question. Why is this passage here? Why not somewhere else? Why is it this line? Why is it there? Why is Ephesians 2 in Ephesians 2? Most Christians who know their Bibles well can quote from Ephesians 2 and say, it's by grace we've been saved, not by works. For we are God's workmanship. But, you know, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, raised us up with Christ, right? It's one of the great passages of the Bible, and it, it encapsulates the gospel beautifully and perfectly in just a few lines. But why is it Ephesians 2? Why isn't it Mark 4? Why, like, why is it here? Right? And the reason is not shocking, but it's a little disorienting. It's because it's not here to explain that the gospel is by grace just so that you would know that you could be saved by believing in Jesus alone. Faith hardly registers. At the very end, he goes, you're saved through faith. But there's almost no discussion of faith. Right? Why does it sit between Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 through 6? What's the point of it being here? Right? And the answer is because the thing that's ruining your life though you don't think so, is pride. That's why it's here. That in order for the church or the people of God to be great, in order for, in chapter 1, for us to see the blessedness of the blessed God, to see all of the ways he has blessed us in the heavenly realms, in all of the ways in which he has made our life in Christ beautiful, in all the ways our salvation is profound and astounding, in all the ways that you and I should enjoy it every day and see it and know it, in every way that in verses 
15 to 22, we were the, his hope was that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would see the hope, the riches, and the power of Christ. All of those joys, all of those strengths, all of those encouragements are completely lost at the moment of pride's entry. Grace and pride are opposites. They are not a yin and yang working together beautifully. They are death knell enemies from the foundations of the world. They are opposed to each other entirely. Pride is the rejection of grace, and it is the rejection of glory. It is blindness as opposed to sight. It is death as opposed to life. It is delusion as opposed to imagination. It destroys everything. And you cannot enjoy God, chapter 1. You cannot live by grace, chapter 2. You cannot have the eyes of your heart enlightened to the beauty of the glory of the encouragements of God, chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. You cannot see that we're one people, all races, nationalities, colors, and languages, chapter 2, the second half. You cannot see that we're one in Christ and that in this strange body of the church, God reveals the many-faceted natures of his glory to all heaven and earth, chapter 3. You can't see that we can really be united and in the church help each other grow, chapter 4, that we can have true tranquility and strength and love in our families and all of their structures, chapter 5, or that we can fight the true fight of spiritual warfare, that nothing can stand against us in what Christ has given us in his armor to us, chapter 6. You can't see any of those marks of grace, those opportunities of mercy, the free gift of the great generosity of the glory of God, the moment pride is present, and it is always present in people, in us, in Christians. Right? And pride is one of those things that we all are pleased with. It pleases our most shallow desires. It's immediate. It encourages and overwhelms and loving tenderness, our vanities. It makes us feel good in so many ways. And everybody else knows it's ugly. Like, everybody around us can see pride in us, unless they're profoundly unsophisticated. But even when our pride is fairly sophisticated, it is so obvious to people. We think it's just us being us. But everybody else knows. And um, Christians who know that we're supposed to be humble oftentimes think, well, but yeah, the world is like that, isn't it, man? It's like that. Like people just, they're really prideful. Beware of Christian sophistication that is not godliness. Oftentimes Christians are only one step more sophisticated than their pride and have not really understood the deep logic of grace in actual humility. When Nicole and I were talking about this, she brought up a couple of really good stories that I thought would illustrate this well for you. A couple of months ago, a really good friend of mine was training for a marathon, and she would post every once in a while on Instagram about how her process was going. And she shared a story that I read that struck me. In the story, she was talking about the middle of a really long run she was going on. She had been running for about seven miles at this point. She's running down this really big hill in her neighborhood. 
Now she's running down. She sends another girl across the other side of the street start to sprint up that same hill. And in that moment, she did what probably a lot of us would do. She started to feel terrible about herself. She started thinking, I am so slow. This girl is running faster than me and running up a hill that I am barely jogging down. And then she thought, wait a minute. I am training for a marathon. I don't know what this girl is doing. She might have just started her run. Maybe all she's doing is one mile. Maybe all she's doing is trying to sprint up this hill. I don't know what's happening. And so I shouldn't worry about what she's going through. I should focus on what I'm doing. And then she thought, man, why do I always find myself comparing the marathons of my life, so to speak, with someone else's sprint? And that sounds really nice. And it feels really nice. And it kind of feels humble. It's like, hey, I'm okay with being different from someone else. And we all do this kind of thing. I do this all the time, especially in parenting. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old son, and he's a really good sleeper, but he is terrible at eating vegetables. And so when I see another mom ask her son to eat a couple more bites of a cucumber, and he just does it, I think to myself, okay, well, Luca would never do that, but I got a whole night's sleep last night. So it was great. But here's the problem. That kind of thinking it isn't actually humble. It's still just boasting because I'm still just focusing on what I can accomplish or can't accomplish. It feels really spiritual. It feels like gospel thinking. But what if it's all based on a lie? <laughs> because here's the problem. I said, I'm okay with being different from this other parent, but I didn't say, I'm okay with being worse than them. Because what if that kid is a great sleeper? What if that other girl really was training for a marathon and she was actually better than my friend? We don't want to face that. We don't want to be gracious with ourselves because what's easier is to feel better about ourselves, even if it's based on potentially a lie. We think that we're being humble. And I really think that my friend was trying to think rightly about the situation. But what she didn't realize she was doing was still just basing every bit of it off of what she could or couldn't accomplish, which is still just her boasting. And it was still me boasting. We're still just trying to paint ourselves in a good light. Sometimes it's by doing it so that we can win the competition. Sometimes it's so that we can get out of the competition and get in a different one that we can win. Right? She could have been like, well, maybe that girl's younger. Or it may just be that, like, all the stuff that's good about Luca has nothing to do with Nicole. And everything that was good about the other kid had to do with Lily's parenting. You just, you have no idea. Right? And all of those thoughts, all of the reframings, they jump up in our heart so fast. And we think that they are a salvation to us. Because where would we be otherwise? We'd be dejected. We'd think we were a failure. We'd think that we were worse than everybody else. Does that make sense? But you see, pride makes losers out of everyone. Right? Because God, like, one of the amazing things was God had two runners on that street. It's a small miracle that any human being would enjoy running. 
right? Just why would you do that, right? And God had two runners on that street. It's amazing, the abundance, you know? And it's really good if, like, God has two little sleepers or, like, whatever. Like, the idea is, is that all of—it's all a gift. It's all gift. If you're worse, so what? You are worse. We are—let's say to yourself, I am worse than a lot of people at a lot of stuff all the time. I always have been, and it's always going to be this way. It's never going to be different. See, like, only one person repeated with me, you don't, because you don't want to say that. But it's true. It's true. We're really good at counting up the ways we think we're remarkable, and we're really poor at counting up the ways in which we're terrible. And it's one of the reasons why we've made such peace with our tragic faults that are destroying our lives. And it's also one of the reasons why our best traits aren't doing their most good, because the pride we instill in them repels people from them, so they don't want to receive from us all we have to give to them. And our strengths are not nearly as strong as they could have been. Had we been hungrier about them, trying to get the most out of the grace God has given us, rather than being super excited about the fact that we think we're fantastic. Right? So let's dive into just this basic fact that the point of this passage is not just so that we know that salvation is by grace, but that you know that salvation is by grace deeply enough that it does something to your reliance on pride for your emotional and psychological salvation of yourself. Because there are many people in this room who would say, and you would think you are different from your non-Christian neighbors, that you don't believe you can save yourself. And then every day you try to psychologically save yourself with pride in the form of your thoughts and how you sculpt them and how you paint yourself so that you can encourage what you call your self-esteem. Rather than by grace, understanding what you are and what God has done for you, so that you can know what you really are and then forget about it, so that you can actually enjoy the glory of God. Okay? So, you're saved by grace in more ways than one. Okay, so let's look at just three of them in this passage. Because in this passage, it talks about maybe three ways you could talk about being saved— how you have been saved, and you've been saved by Christ, by grace. And it lays out nicely because it's basically your past, your future, and your present. But the emphasis is your present because you come to grips with your past and your future, okay? So the, the first thing we can say about this passage is, is that God has saved you from death. God has—that's the salvation from your past is that God has saved you from death, right? It literally says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And in the way you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That is a reference to Satan and devils. But the reference to the kingdom of the air, think about this. Air is ubiquitous and without substance. It's everywhere. But it, it doesn't make you do anything right? And yet, we obey it. And it says that, it doesn't say, he made us do it. What it says is, is that we submit to him because, it says this, all of us also lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That is, we didn't follow devils. We followed our own flesh, what was worst about us, which is where our pride is rooted, according to the Bible. We have a certain set of desires that we just want to do, and those desires in this faculty called the flesh produce a set of thoughts that justify our desires. That is how pride works. Um, you may have heard, read articles in the last 10 years or so about people saying, that's really just how the mind works, right? Like, your instincts want something, you desire something, and then your mind comes up with a reason to justify it. That's really how the human mind works. No, that's not how the human mind works. That's how the human mind works in its lowest form, undisciplined, and unformed morally and in terms of character. Unformed human beings who just react and do whatever they want, who've never been disciplined or taught moral truths or spiritual truths, who are the weakest they can possibly be, their mind serves their stomach. That's what happens. And all that really does happen in their mind is their desires want something, and their mind goes, I can think of a good way to justify this. And so your mind just becomes the lawyer of your gut. And that's how most people live. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. He's like, that's, that's how most people live. But if, if you live with your mind transformed into the knowledge of Christ, what happens is your desires say something, and then your mind goes, okay, oh wait, 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 wait. No, we're not doing that. Are you crazy? Your mind can be trained not to just go along with your gut, not to just go along with your instincts. Your mind can stand in control. You remember Genesis 3, where there's the curse? And there's this rela- it's supposed to be this relationship between the man and the woman, and God says, now there's going to be conflict where there, used to, there would have been complementarity. Where the man was made for the woman, and maleness and femaleness and masculinity and femininity would go together in this beautiful harmony. Now, in the fall, they're going to fight against each other. Right? He could have written that about your mind. That in creation, all your passions, all your desires, all your instincts, and your mind were all supposed to work together really great. And in the fall, in our brokenness and destruction, when pride enters in and when all of our faculties become broken, not just in themselves, but from their relationships with each other, now we exist in a state in which our gut is wrong, our mind is wrong, and they get it wrong together. Right? It's like a drug dealer shacking up with a prostitute. It's just not going to go well. Because they're both broken to start with. And without the redemption of Christ, both in your desires and in your mind— these two can never come into the complementarity that they're meant to have. And they must both be retrained in the knowledge and grace of Christ by the power of the Spirit in the mind of Christ to submit to the truths of love. Right? And so you could say, okay, so what—I've had a lot of arguments with Christians um, about what dead means here. Because it doesn't mean what it would most literally mean, right? Usually if we would think dead just means you're a corpse, right? And he's clearly not talking about people who are dead because they're reading this, right? So you have to figure out what dead means apart from that definition. And so um, s- some people argue that it means basically like you're, you're lost, right? Um, that, that word is used in Luke 15, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? The— you got the father and the two sons, and the younger was like, give me my inheritance now. I don't care if you're still alive. I'm going to go and do stuff. And he goes and squanders it. When he finally comes back after he's lost everything, and the older brother hates his guts for it, doesn't want to receive him back, the father says to his brother, what does he say to the older brother? 
he says, your brother was dead and is alive again. And then he says what? He was lost, but now he's found. Right? And so dead in transgressions and sins means you and I were utterly and completely relationally alienated from God. We were so far from him, we were light, we were dead to him. Not in the judicial sense yet. That'll be the next verse. Not in the sense like, you're dead to me, I hate you. But no, like, we left. We never called. We spent everything. There was no word or whisper of where we were. We were that far away. We were following ourselves, not God. We were lost. We were dead. Right? But then also, we were enslaved. Right? Which is a good reason why you didn't call, right? We were, we were enslaved by it. That is, we were, yeah, we were under the auspices of the ruler of the kingdom of the earth, but we were listening to our gut and our stomach, and we were becoming more enslaved and enslaved to our reactions and our glands and our immediate desires. We were becoming less ourselves, less human, less able to function in the image of God, less willing to acknowledge the truth of the world, more and more focused in on ourselves, more giving ourselves over to the explanations of pride to soothe our vanity and desires so that we could do whatever we want. Right? And it's a small wonder when you read that, like, why doesn't he use the metaphor of enslaved and liberated? I mean, in other places, the Apostle Paul really focuses on sin being like an enslavement and salvation being like a liberation. Galatians, for example, the book right before this in the Bible, there's a heavy emphasis on being enslaved and being freed. Why doesn't he—why does he use the metaphor dead, right? But that is a kind of death. It is a destruction of yourself. It's, it's like an addiction, right? It's like somebody taking a drug that's killing them. That's what sin is like. It is a— it is a dissipation, right? Why do we say like, oh, he's lost in dissipation? I mean, that's kind of an old word to say. But if you think about it, if you like, if you light a match and there's some smoke, and then it just kind of dissipates into nothing, right? You can use yourself up. Not just so that your body is broken down, but so that there's really nothing left of you. I mean, have you—I remember talking to Adam Mabry when he first went to Scotland. And England has ghettos, some of them worse than America, where there's just— they're just incredibly inhumane, what goes on in them. And all that happens is government money comes in, men go out and drink booze and get in knife fights, and then they sleep with whatever women they can get a hold of, and there's illegitimate children. It's just it's horrible. And Adam said, I, I try to talk with some of these guys on the street about the gospel, and it's not even that they argue against it. It's not even that they're passionate. There's nothing there. Like, I talk to them, and like, it's like somebody has sucked their humanity out of them, and there's no one home. There's no person there. He's like, I believe the image of God is still in them, and that there is a person there, and that if God makes them alive in Christ through a miracle, they can be saved. He said, but in the natural world, they have been hollowed out. And we always sit in our pride, too sophisticated to say it, in judgment of people who engage in lifestyles of bodily dissipation. And yet, for some reason, Christians oftentimes do not key in on the soul dissipation that comes with all sin, especially as it is marshaled by pride. Right? And then the third thing is, right, it says we were all by nature the subjects or objects of God's wrath. That is, we were dead meat. <laughs> like, upon meeting, we die. And the answer, of course, is like, you know, when you say, well, which is it? Well, it's all of them. Yes is the answer, right? I mean, 
it is, it, it's all three. Right? We were dead lost. We didn't, there, we talk in ministry in India about kids who are, who are, young girls who are, who are taken into sex trafficking, and when they get liberated, and we, we, we try to figure out, like these organizations try to figure out where their families are, they don't know. People come to, to Mumbai to work, and when things don't go well, they don't know how to get home. They don't know where their village is. They can't get back to it. They're utterly rootless, right? And sin has that kind of lostness. It so separates you from your roots that you don't even know how to go back if you wanted to and could get a bus ticket. We were lost in our transgressions since we were dead. And we were also dead by way of dissipation. We were killing ourselves by our own hand. And we were dead meat. We were so misusing the image of God in us and so denying our purpose in creation that God made us for that we deserved his wrath. We were dead meat. And in all those ways, we were dead. And that has nothing to do with why Paul chose this metaphor. Right? The reason he chose this metaphor was the verses before it. He says, what I want for you as a Christian, as a person, as a human being, I want you to understand, I want you to understand the power of God. Because we don't understand the power of God. Because it's veiled in a certain kind of mysterious way. And he says, I want you to understand it. I want you to understand that in Christ, you possess in him the hope of glory, the riches of his inheritance, and the power that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You have to understand that power. In order to understand that power, you have to A, believe in the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. God raised him bodily from the dead. Right? And then you're like, that's great. What does it have to do with me? And the answer is, what it has to do with you is, if you have believed, however it felt like to you when you believed, what spiritually happened was that God raised you from the dead Notice it doesn't say in Christ. It doesn't say in Christ. It doesn't say by Christ. It doesn't say through Christ. Remember how I always go on about prepositions? What does it say? It says, did you notice? Anyone? It says with Christ. With Christ. With that power God exerted. He raised Christ out of the grave from the dead. And with him, he raised you up similarly from death. With him. It's the same power. You might be like, Nick, raising somebody literally from the dead. And me believing in Jesus. Okay, like, I get the metaphor, but no, you don't get the metaphor. Because you don't understand pride. That's why it doesn't move you. If you understand the closeness of the human soul to grace, the closeness of the human soul, that you are not in charge of yourself, you did not create yourself, you do not direct yourself, your life is not your own, you do not, nothing belongs to you that you have, you are not here forever, God, God doesn't owe you a good life, that you were made by grace, you are God's workmanship. Everything about you is by grace. Everything to brag about. Everything that's productive about you. Everything that's loving about you. Everything that's healthy about you. Everything that's beautiful about you is a complete, utter, absolute, divine 
gift. You did nothing. You might as well brag about the color of your eyes. And then from the day you were born, you denied that to the death. And God persuaded you that that was death. And that in his grace, his generous work in Christ, that that, where you lose everything that you held for your own personal salvation for another thing you couldn't touch or eat or give to your flesh as a sacrifice because it's not fleshly. You had to abandon and you had to turn your back on the God of the flesh because there is no offering that the grace of God gives that you can sacrifice to the God of pride. He doesn't want them. He doesn't care about them. It's not what he asks for. He wants, like Molech, the blood of your children. That's what he wants. He wants, he wants the physicality of life from you. He wants your overwork. He wants your vanity. He wants your selfishness. These are the sacrifices pride endures so that he will placate your vanity. Christ gives you none of these. None of the things Christ gives you can you sacrifice to the God of pride. And so, in no way will he help you save yourself, but he will take from you every sacrifice you give to the God of pride to save yourself. Every vanity, every claim, every indulgence, every achievement that you've ever had that you believe makes you worthwhile and that makes you think well of yourself and that gives you the pretense to argue in your own heart that you're a good person when you do what you want— all of those are taken from you. Your bank account to buy off the God pride to give you yourself salvation is empty. And it's terrifying. And you will never do that. But that God, with Christ, as he raised Christ from the dead, exerted that same power to persuade you. And for some of you, it's happening right now. Right now, you are sensing in yourself that maybe it is right to give up all your pride in everything you've sacrificed to it, in all the ways that you placate yourself and tell yourself that you're good and okay, that you could, you could let all of that go and you could put your trust in Christ alone and in God's graciousness to you and in his own glory that is completely immaterial and pledge all of yourself to that and that would be better and truer and more right and it might save you, really. That is that same power in you right now, the Holy Spirit persuading you that you could go from death to life right now. And you can live by glory and by grace and not by works and pride and fraud. Because he's come to save you from death. He has raised you up in Christ. He made you alive. There's no more passive verb towards us than this in the Bible. He made you alive with Christ. Therefore, it is by grace you have been saved. Right? He saved you from your past in a way there is nothing left of your pride. Right? Now, what's also true is that he has saved you by his grace for glory. 
you're not going to have a better future than your neighbor. One of the the reasons you can know if you are a Christian that you believe in salvation in your future by pride is if when you think of heaven, you think a, a lot about what treasures you will get in heaven on the basis of the amount of your faithfulness. Because there are verses in the Bible that say that, like, there can be an increase in the amount of what God gives you in eternity based on choices and faithfulness and things like that. There are a few verses like that. They're kind of scattered just enough to trip you up if you want to be wrong in pride. You know what I mean? And just enough to encourage you that if you're like, look, I'm going to be as faithful as I can, and God is going to see that. That's really cool. And he'll determine what that means. Right? It says, because remember, in verses 15 to 22 in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 here, it doesn't just say that you were raised with Christ from the grave into life right now. It says that in him you were raised with Christ where? It says, and seated us. So we were, God raised us up with Christ, and it doesn't say from the grave, because it means both. From the grave to life, from life into the heavenly places, and seated us as he seated him at the right hand of God. Why? What's the implications of that? In order that in the coming ages, that is in the forever from now, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness, his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. See what he's saying? He's saying, listen, the power of God that raised Christ from the dead and raised him up above every authority, rule, power, dominion, and name, like it says in, we talked about last week, that's, that raised him up into the heavenly places and seated him at the right hand of God the Father, spiritually speaking, in terms of your destiny in Christ, that is also already accomplished because, because as you are in Christ in faith, it means you are with Christ in his position. That's what Paul's arguing. That in faith, you become in Christ. That is, you come into a spiritual union with him, then everything that he has is yours, including his position. That he's been raised up into the heavenly places, meaning, what that means contextually is, that heaven is assured. That your destiny and future is assured. Right? That you're already seated in heaven. What would that mean? It would mean that, like, everything's already happened. You've lived your whole life. You died. You went through judgment. You persevered to the end. God, is, God invites you into his presence. You come into his presence. You're seated. Seat, being seated means rest and accomplishment. Right? In Semitic cultures. And so what it means is, is that from the, that perspective, from that spiritual perspective, it's already all done. It's already all done. Because he did it in Christ. And he did it by the power of his spirit that he exerted in his resurrection from the dead. Does that mean you don't have to persevere? No, just read the rest of the Bible. We're all going to be working to persevere together in grace. But what it means is that from a certain perspective, your destiny is already achieved. You're never going to be able to brag about it. It will never be a source of pride. Even your spiritual faithfulness and spiritual accomplishment mean nothing in relationship to your future. You are already seated with Christ in heaven, spiritually speaking. And God has already endeavored to show you in the coming ages of all forever the riches of his grace. Who gives a crap if you have more jewels in your crown? Right? The vulgarity was for intensity. Did you feel it? Like, like, like these thoughts come into our mind. 
Do you, know, do you see what the verse says? It says that what he did in Jesus, in raising you up from the dead, in seating you with him spiritually in terms of your destiny, was so that he would have the opportunity forever to express and show you how rich and amazing and uncomparable his generosity is. That's his purpose for forever for you and everyone else. You are so special, just like everyone else. And you see, when you realize that, you're not going anywhere I'm not going. You're not getting anything I'm not getting. We're, we're all the same. We're all dead. We're all alive. If we're in Christ, we are with Christ, seated with God. The whole purpose of him showing us the amazing nature of Christ and his death and resurrection, that kindness is the unfathomable and uncomparable kindness that is in the heart of God himself. And all of eternity is the date on which he shows us all that he has to show us. Right? If you look at this passage, for example, one of the things that's easy not, not to see is the number of times he uses the word riches. Right? Verse 4. Why did God save us from death? Why did he do that? Was it because we were good? It was not because we were good. It says this. But because of his great love by which he loved us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. So what, why, why were we made alive? We were made alive because God is rich. That's why we were made alive. And the particular resource that we needed, because we were by nature deserving of wrath, what God had to be rich in for us to be safe was mercy. He had to be so filled and so rich. He had to be a quadrillionaire of mercy to save us. But he is. And because he was rich in mercy— it produced a great love by which he loved us, and therefore he was willing to exert all he had to in Christ and in the Spirit to raise us up. Right? And then why would he care to give us some kind of forever? Well, it, it says, it says, And God raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that— So this, he had a reason, a purpose, something he wanted to do in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace that he expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the mercy that is he's rich in produced kindness. He wanted to help us. The disposition of mercy said, they're in a terrible, terrible place. They're never going to get out of it. I feel terrible about that. I wish it could be changed. How can it be changed? Well, by him acting is the only way. That is, he had to be kind. His mercy had to issue forth in a kind of action that is exactly what we needed in the situation we were in. That is, he had to be kind to us. And so he was in Christ. Christ was exactly what we needed. That kindness shown forth in Christ was an example. It's, it's only an example. It's not even everything. It's not nearly everything. It's our everything because it saves us. But in another sense, what he did in Christ is a tiny thing. It's simultaneously our everything and a little taste of just the kindness of God. The whole of which he wishes to show us in eternal ages. 
because of Christ and because of his riches. If you go back to the page before, it says riches. In chapter 3, when Paul talks about his role as an apostle, he says, although I'm the less than the least of all the Lord's people, this is verse 8 in chapter 3, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. See what he said? He, he summarizes his whole mission. His whole mission, our whole mission, is to demonstrate that in Christ, God has displayed his unsearchable riches and that they come in a mysterious way that you have to have eyes to see. What eyes to see? What eyes can see the unsearchable riches of Christ cloaked in a certain kind of mystery in the man Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection? The answer is eyes that are willing to let go of pride because it's only by grace that you can see salvation. It's all by grace. If the eyes that look upon it look with any pride, they will see something disgusting and stupid and worthless. But any eyes that look upon it and are willing to look upon Christ crucified and risen for us in humility, they will be forever stunned and pleased and filled with joy and thankfulness because of the grace of God. Right? Okay, we better keep moving. The present salvation is this, that God has saved us from boasting. Aren't you glad? Isn't that the most exciting one of the three? <laughs> People say to me all the time, Nick, I like the academic thing in your sermons, but like I just wish they'd be more practical, right? Which I say it enough here that you know I'm annoyed by it, but you can still keep saying it to me because it, it like it gives me the accountability I need, right? Here's the problem. This is the practical verse, and you don't care about it. Right? It's so like, you, you wouldn't know spiritually practical if they hit you with a bat. Right? Pride is the thing that's ruining your life. It's, it's keeping you holding on to your faults. It's what keeps you afraid from risking anything because your arguments about how good you are might be destroyed in your failures. It's keeping you from apologizing to the people you could have incredibly warm and loving relationships with. It's keeping you from growing emotionally. It's keeping you from overcoming your hurts of the past. You're like, how dare you talk about my trauma? Well, yeah, but listen, it is pride that keeps you holding on to it. Because you're terrified about the failure that would come if you tried to grapple with it and it didn't work. Better to just hold on to it and know that you have certain entitlements because you have this thing called your hurts than for you to really try to grapple with them. Who knows what it'll uncover and who knows what a failure you might be in trying to overcome them. But where there is faith in, faith in the unsearchable riches of the grace of God, there can be no failure. Faithfulness is the only success. And fear is the only failure. The beauty of the gospel is that not only are your works nothing, but your faith is nothing in terms of merit. Right? Are, are your works something? Of course there's something. Is your faith something? Of course. It's saved. You're saved through faith. It's necessary to be saved. But it doesn't matter in relationship to pride. That's what this passage means. You're saved by grace through faith and apart from works. Why? Because even everything that you could ever do 
is the result of grace, either in creation or redemption. Right? Listen, I know, I know you don't like that, but it's, it's, it's what the Bible teaches everywhere. All that you, everything that you have is either comes from the grace of creation, the human beingness that you got in your birth, all your traits, your temperaments, your biological whatevers, your intelligence, all that, you received not because you did anything. You received it by grace. Everything good about it is gracious. And then in redemption, all the, all the transformation that comes is by grace. And if you turn to God in faith, you are raised from the dead in that. That's by grace. And the only reason any of it was ever possible was because of Christ, who was a gift of grace. So e- literally everything is grace. Right? Your contribution is like the contribution you make on Christmas when you receive a gift, you go, thank you, and then you open it. It's profoundly ridiculous to open a gift and be like, I did this. And think that you are now responsible for the creation of the gift that is in your hands because you opened it. Right? That's true of salvation. But just because you receive salvation through faith doesn't—it's no, it's not meritorious. The, the salvation you then figuratively hold in your hands, you didn't make it. You just unwrapped it. You received it. That's all. There's no merit in that. Right? And, and similarly, anything that you do because of that salvation or anything you did before it, it's all a gift of grace. And I know, like, sometimes we don't like that because we think, well, you know, if we believe that, then we'll all be socialists and, like, nobody will stand on their own two feet. And where will the accountability be? And that's actually all true. Right? Like, there is a misunderstanding that comes from grace where you think, well, if— if we live by grace, then like all we should be is like nice to people and accommodating. And that is a, that is a monstrosity of understanding what grace is. The Bible is filled with accountability language, and you have to understand a tension between how God holds us accountable and makes us more responsible through grace. And how does he do it? This is how he does it. When you realize that you are simply the product of grace, you also realize that you were created with a purpose and that grace demands a response. One of the things that's very difficult for us— So there's this verse in John. I don't want to say too much about this, but I I feel like because people don't understand this concept, they get the idea of grace very wrong. There's this this verse in John where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Everybody loves that verse. The very next verse says this. For— so. Why that verse makes sense. For God did not send his, wor- his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world would be saved through him. Sounds good, right? Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, right? And then it says, But whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he hasn't believed in God's one and only Son. Like, if you read those three verses together, that can be very disorienting. God sent his love. He loves us, right? And it's not for condemnation. And if you don't believe in him, you're condemned already. Apart from all of your sins. You, none of your sins even matter. Just the rejection of Jesus is enough for eternal and horrific personal condemnation. Why is that? Why is that? That's crazy. It's not crazy. It's not crazy. You know it's true in every other context. When somebody does something nice for you, and you spurn it, or, or 
better yet, when you do something nice for somebody else and they don't seem sufficiently thankful, you are more angry than if it was an economic transaction where you paid for it. You know that. You know in your heart. Every time you've gone out of your way to graciously do what you didn't have to do for somebody else, and you did what they needed, and you did it out of, out of mercy and kindness, and you did it so that they could have a better life, so that they could be in a better situation, and then they just wasted it. Or they took credit for it. Drives you crazy. And there's a lot of pride in that. Because everything you gave to, you still gave to a creation that was made by the grace of God and all the resources for their transformation was already in them by the gift of God and you really didn't do that much. But the one who gave everything is the only one who can truly and completely and intensely and terribly feel the anger that rightly comes in the rejection of grace. Grace is not to be trifled with. Spurning it is more horrific than the active other acts of evil that we do. Because grace is the glory of God. It is the gift of God. It is the beauty of God. It is the culmination of everything that is good. And to spurn it, to hate it, to turn yourself from it, is to turn yourself from reality to the God of pride. To turn yourself from everything you were made for, for everything you were stolen for. From everything that can redeem life to everything that destroys it. You become the greatest villain there can be. But when you realize that you are saved by grace, that grace was given freely to you, and that everything you have left to do is not for your merit. Right? What does that last verse say? And Mike's going to spend a whole sermon just on this verse and its implications for our growth and transformation next week. But it says, you're not saved by works. That's the negative. Here's the positive. But you are yourself God's workmanship, his handiwork. You are the thing he is specially made by grace. You are a thing of unspeakable beauty and precision. You were made for things that he has predestined for you to do. He's prepared beforehand. That means predestined. You are a special, perfectly made creation of God by grace to do things. You have no idea what they're going to be that he has specifically chosen and absolutely has made you for and only you can do them that he has predestined you for. They will seem very ordinary. They are of cosmic importance. If you cannot get motivated by that, nothing good can motivate you. You can only be motivated by pride, and you're lost at this moment. But if you open your heart to grace, the idea that God himself, in his beauty, has saved you from a dead past, has promised you an incomparable age of the future, of the unlaying of all his kindness and beauties, And in the present, he has not given you to the God of pride that will devour you, but has made you beautifully as his own perfect work. Not your works. You are his work, and he has made providential and perfect works for the story of your life for you that only you can do, that you are going to find out in 20 minutes and in 20 years that you will walk in this week in all your life that will seem ordinarily but are perfectly ordained by God that you were perfectly made for if you will open yourself to it. That can stir you practically for anything. The seemingly ordinary 
profound ritual of communion or the Lord's table is the ritual by which we acknowledge this regularly. We did not save ourselves. We will never save ourselves. Thank God. We were made by grace. We were saved by grace. We are redeemed in the present by grace. We are changed by grace. We are enriched by grace. We have a future in heaven by grace. We have a destiny and future here by grace. Everything is by grace. And it's poured out mainly and namely in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Who we celebrate his death and resurrection and the taking of this bread and wine together. So the deacons are going to come up and they're going to